In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear saints of God, it's in the past. Don't worry about it. Just put it behind you. Do those words do anything for you? Either when you're saying them to someone else or when someone else is saying them to you. Do, do those words do anything for you? I, I'm going to guess. I haven't asked any of, any of you this but before right now, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of you would probably answer that question with something like, not really, which is understandable, but it's also a little strange. Because we say things like that a lot, right? It's sort of like you, you hear that phrase, right? Time marches on. And so we, we sort of picture like our whole lives like this on this timeline. And as time marches on, the things that happened in our past, we move further and further away from us. And so really, they don't matter as much. They're behind us. They're in the past. But life doesn't really work that way, does it? And neither does time. So why do we say it? I think we say things like this, simply put, because we want them to be true. We want to be able to say, you know what, it's not a big deal, it's in the past, and for it to actually become true. Especially when we say those things in regards to pain or hurting. We want to be able to say, it's in the past, what I did. We want to be able to say, you know what, it, it's behind me, what someone did to me. Which hopefully means that it's done, it's over. It's powerless to affect me anymore, which we so desperately want to be true. And it becomes one of those things where we think, you know what, if we say it enough, maybe, I don't know. I think the same thinking is what gets us all excited every New Year's. What really changed from December 31st 2021 at 11.59 to January 1st at midnight 2022. What changed? One number. That's it. But that's not at all how we view it, is it? We, we want to think that everything that I associated with 2021, at least all of the bad things, all of the hurt and the pain and the loss and the disappointment, I can turn the calendar, I can turn over a new year, and all of those things will just be relegated to the past. They'll be behind me, which means they won't affect me anymore. And, and 2022? Or 2023? That is going to be my year. This is going to be the year that I get it all right, that I get over those things, that I move on, and I finally accomplish the things I've set out to do. Well, I know we're only 
16 days in, but how's it going for you? By now, you've probably already learned what you already knew. And that is that all of those things that you had hoped would stay in your past, at least the past year, have somehow managed to follow you into 2022. But what if we could? What if we could put that hurt behind us? What if there was a way for us to leave the sad past in the past and move into a more joyful and and awesome future? Would you be interested? Because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in our second reading from Titus chapter 3. Paul wrote this letter to a fellow pastor friend, a man who was younger than him. His name was Titus. You see, Paul has, uh, was leaving Titus on the Greek island of Crete to finish organizing the new churches that they had established there and to instruct and install and ordain a pastor in every city where they had started a church. Titus was himself, though, a pretty recent convert. He was a Gentile. He was one of those that Paul had met and converted by the work of the Holy Spirit to the Christian faith. And so Paul realized that he was leaving Titus with an extremely difficult task. Because, you see, in Titus chapter 1, Paul gives us a little bit of an insight as to what the people of Crete were like. And he quotes one of their own local poets. Uh, This man was a a philosopher. Paul calls him a prophet. Paul starts out in in Titus chapter 1, and he tells Titus, There are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And they do it for the sake of dishonest gain. And here's what he says. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That was coming from a fellow Cretan. So, fellow Cretans even didn't think very highly of other Cretans. These were not very sanctified people that Paul left Titus in charge of. And Paul knew that, which is why he writes the letter. And so, Paul writes this letter to instruct Timothy, or Titus, on all of the things that he needed to cover in order to encourage these new Christians on this island of Crete. Paul says, you know what, you need to teach the pastors to do this. And you need to teach the older men to be that. And then you need to teach the older women to do this, so that they can teach the younger women to be that. And just sort of verse after verse, there's a new paragraph with a new set of instructions on what Titus needed to teach people. 
It's a very practical book on Christian living, but, but Paul is not a teacher. Not primarily, anyway. Paul is a preacher. He said so himself numerous times that the Lord had called him to be the apostle, to be the preacher to the Gentiles. And so despite all of this teaching, all of this instruction that Paul gives to Titus, Paul can't help but slide back into being a preacher. And so in the short three chapters, only 46 verses in his letter to Titus, there are a couple paragraphs where Paul begins to preach just to Titus. And our text for this morning from Titus chapter 3 is one of those paragraphs. He begins the chapter with more instruction. Paul says, this is Titus chapter 3, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Paul says, Titus, I know. I know that these Cretans don't have a very good reputation. So remind them what a Christian looks like. Remind them how a child of God is to act in the world. And then to prevent Titus from thinking to himself, yeah, some people you left here with me, Paul. These vulgar, uncivilized, unsanctified people, Paul preaches to Titus. And this is where our text begins. Paul says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul says, Remember, Titus. Sin isn't just a Cretan problem. It's an every person problem. It's your problem and my problem. All of the things that the Cretans are known for, you and I are guilty of. All the things that would disqualify the Cretans from being called children of God are part of your past and mine too. You wonder how many times Paul had that thrown in his face. Everywhere he preached. Yeah, it's an interesting message that you bring, Paul, but you know what? Sure is coming from a guy with a bit of a checkered past, don't you think? I mean, aren't you the guy who stood there giving his approval as a mob stoned Stephen to death? Weren't you the guy that went from town to town with arrest and even murder warrants in hand ready to arrest and execute Christians who refused to, 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 to disavow their faith? And now you're trying to tell us how to live? Now you want to preach on sanctified living? Man, is there a better way to get Christians to shut up than that? Such a weapon that the devil has against us, and he doesn't even have to fabricate any of it. All he has to do is point to our past. 
And it doesn't even have to be our ancient past. It could be our past week. It could be our past day. He can just point out those things. And he does it through the mouth of someone that you are genuinely interested in and trying to share your faith with. Someone that you want to know Christ better. I don't know, perhaps they, they say something to you like, who are you to preach to me? Fancy coming from someone with a rap sheet like yours. Maybe you have spent a lifetime trying to forget your past, trying to put all of your words and your thoughts and your actions behind you, but my memory is much better than yours. I know who you are, and I know many of the things you've done. And we shut up. How could we not? There's no response to that. Because they're right. Who am I? Who are you to be talking about things like God and sin and what is good and what is bad and who is going to heaven and who is going to hell? And we can't just put those things behind us. Because while the list Paul provides isn't long, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures, malice, envy, and hatred, while the list is not long, it is plenty sufficient. What do all of those things mean? What do all of those sins point to and lead to? The wages of your sin and mine is death. Death is in our future and every bit of it will be deserved. And with death in your future, trying to put all of the bad things in your life in the past is a waste of time and energy. Because the most dreadful and terrifying thing will always be in your future. But what people think disqualifies us from talking about such things. Because we're so sinful ourselves actually makes the God who would save us look that much more gracious. Which is exactly where Paul goes next. The rest of this text is actually one long, deep passage. It's one sentence, one of the longest and deepest in the entire New Testament. Did you ever have to diagram sentences in school? Yeah, you remember doing that? So weird. It was one of the very, very, very few things I actually liked doing in school. I don't even know if they do it anymore. You remember this, right? You see this big, long, compound sentence, and the first thing you had to do was you had to find the main sentence within the sentence. You had to find the main subject, verb, and object, and then everything else kind of built off of that. So what is, in this long, big, dense sentence, what is the main subject? What is the main sentence within the sentence? Can you find it? God saved us. Yes, even foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, and hateful us. And the rest of the sentence, the the rest of what amounts to a paragraph, describes who that God is and how He saved us and what it means that He saves us. First, Paul describes when God saved us. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. The words kindness and love there are very interesting. They're the equivalent to the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word chesed, which means probably absolutely nothing to you. But it is arguably the most important word in the entire Old Testament outside of the name Yahweh, the name for the Lord. It's a word that is used in one of the most repeated phrases of the Old Testament, which will absolutely mean something to you. Do these words sound familiar? God's love, chesed, endures forever. Or or maybe you remember it as God's mercy endures forever. Which is what makes this so interesting. Because love and mercy are not the same thing. You can love someone and for whatever reason choose to not show them mercy. You can show mercy to someone and not genuinely love them. So why different translations for the same word? Because it's one of those words, and if you've ever studied any foreign language, you know this, It's one of those words that just does not have an equivalent in English. There is no word that fully encapsulates this Hebrew word. And so maybe you remember an even older translation that doesn't translate it as love, doesn't translate it as mercy, but translated it as what amounted to be at the time a completely made-up English word. The loving kindness of God endures forever. Which is just really taking two lovey-dovey words from English and mashing them together and saying, well, we'll try and say as much as we possibly can, which I love, but I don't understand why they only stopped at two. I mean, mash them all together if you're going to do that. Let's call this the, the loving kindness, compassion, mercy, goodness, grace of God. That might sound even better. And when did the loving kindness, compassion, mercy, goodness, grace of God appear? Well, literally, when did it epiphany? With the arrival, the epiphany of Jesus. That when Jesus was born... When Jesus was baptized, when Jesus preached and taught, when Jesus performed miracles, when Jesus suffered and was crucified, when he died and when he rose and ascended into heaven, all of those things, that was Jesus coming as the personal manifestation of God's loving kindness, compassion, mercy, goodness, grace toward all sinners. And why did God save us? What was his motivation? 
Well, here Paul needs to say two things because one is not enough. Why are we not saved? That is, what is not the cause of our salvation? And then why are we saved? Or what is the cause of our being saved? First, why not? Paul says God saved us, but not because of righteous things we had done. Which makes sense to us as confessional Lutherans who hold to by grace alone, through faith alone, Scripture alone, and Jesus alone. But understand and recognize that this idea, this grace alone, that we are not saved because of the righteous things we do, that is totally counterintuitive to people. And if we're being honest from time to time, maybe a lot of the times, it's still counterintuitive to us. Why would God save someone like me? It has to be because there is something about me. It has to be because there is something in me. It has to be because God looked into the future and knew who I would become. You think those things and you're wrong. It's not because of the righteous things that we would do. God welcomes no help when it comes to your salvation. He only welcomes sinners. Which makes this Christian faith, your faith, truly unique. Every other religion, every other conceivable pathway to every other meaningful existence is at best a co-production between you and the supposed deity. You do a little bit, he does the rest. You do most of it, and she fills in the gaps. But at worst, it's all up to you. But not with your God. Why did your God, the living God, the one true triune God, save you? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Why did God save you? Because he saw how foolish, how disobedient and deceived and enslaved and malicious and envious and hateful you are, and he had pity on you. He so wanted you to be saved that he knew if he left any of it, the smallest fraction of the smallest minute detail up to you, you would have been lost forever. And so God does it all from beginning to end. Even his motivation to save you comes from his own merciful goodness. He saves you not because you are righteous. He saves you because he is merciful. How did God save us? By what means did God save us? Paul says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. God saved us by washing us. Interestingly, this is the exact same word that we heard earlier at the beginning of the service from Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul also wrote, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. God saves us by washing us with water, water that is connected to his word. But what word? Any word? The, the whole Bible? A general word? A law word? A command? No. By a promise. A promise to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A promise that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The promise of the gospel. Because it is that word, the gospel, that is preached into and connected with the water of your baptism. Because it is at your baptism that you are connected to Christ. Paul wrote this to the Romans. Chapter 6, he said, you were baptized into Christ. And if you were baptized into Christ, then you were baptized into everything that Christ did. Meaning you were baptized into his death. And if you were baptized into the crucifixion of Christ, then you were also buried with Christ. And if you were baptized into the crucifixion of Christ and buried with Christ, then that can only mean that you also were raised with Christ to live a whole new life. Paul calls it here with Titus a washing of rebirth and renewal. A being born again. Being given a new life. It's the same thing that Jesus himself said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again of water and the Spirit. Which is exactly how all of this happens. How can a little water and a couple simple words connect you to Jesus? How can baptism bring about a death and resurrection for you? By the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does it all. Which means baptism is not an ordinance to be obeyed. It is a promise to be believed. Which means baptism is not your righteous work and neither is your believing the promise of baptism. This is all done to you. This is all worked in you. This is all done for you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Remember that Monday, Thursday, Jesus was sitting there with his disciples and he told them that he was going away, but that he would not leave them as orphans. He was going to the Father, but when he got there, he would send the Comforter, the Counselor. He promised to send from the Father the Holy Spirit. And about 53 days later, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus made good on that promise. 
as he generously poured out from the Father the Holy Spirit. Now, exalted at the Father's right hand, Jesus does the same for you in baptism. And so every baptism is really a reliving of Pentecost, where Jesus generously pours out the Holy Spirit from God the Father onto the baptized, where the Holy Spirit applies to you the promise. So that everything Jesus did and accomplished through his perfect life, atoning death, and powerful resurrection is now yours. Finally, what's the result? Paul says, God did all of this so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The result is you are justified. You now have God's acquittal, his promise, his declaration of sins forgiven. And in baptism, God's promise isn't just a word to be heard anymore. It is a word and promise that is connected to water, which means that it is also a word and a promise that is to be seen and touched. So that when you struggle, how do I know that God's promise is for me? Or how do I know that I actually believe enough? Or how do I know that God hasn't changed his mind because you are baptized? Because you're baptized. And this is its result. You are justified by grace. And because you are justified by grace, you now have become an heir of eternal life. Not just that you might become. That's a bad translation. No idea why that's in there. But that you have become an heir of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. You know, Paul wrote like, what, half the New Testament? But he only writes that phrase, this is a trustworthy saying, five times. It's sort of like when Jesus says, I tell you the truth. He doesn't mean to say that all the rest of the time, eh, you know, take it or leave it. I wasn't being completely honest with you. No, Jesus says that. Paul says it because he wants you to pay attention. That this is something mightily important. This is a trustworthy saying. Pay attention to this. Never forget this. And you say, Pastor, you just preached for what? 25, 30 minutes? On one of the longest and deepest passages in the entire New Testament? And now you're telling us not to forget any of it? Good luck. So let me do you a favor and simplify it. What is Paul saying here in Titus chapter 3? It's in the past. That's what he's saying. But what is in the past? All of it. Your hurt, your pain, your sin. All your foolishness, your disobedience, your deceit, your malice, your envy and hatred, and along with them, 
everything that those sins bring and point to, which again is death. And this isn't just my word, something I'm hoping to convince you of. This is the promise of baptism, which is the promise of the gospel, which is the promise of God himself. He has called you to a life where death is behind you. Because it is. Paul says, at one time we were foolish, but you're not anymore. You're forgiven, and it's in the past. Paul says, we lived in malice and envy, but you don't anymore. You've got a whole new life, and your sins are behind you. You died to those sins. In baptism, you died with Christ. Friends, baptism means that you no longer live a life with the terrorizing fear that death is in front of you. Because it's not. That's not who you are. That is who you were. That is who you used to be. But that person died. She was drowned and a new person arose all because of God's powerful promise that the Holy Spirit brought to you in water and word. Living with death behind you. Think about what that means. Your fear is removed because death is defeated. Freedom reigns because your sins are forgiven. And all that remains now are things like joy, and peace, and hope, and love. And all of these things are yours in abundance. That is your life, dear baptized child of God. And this is a trustworthy saying. Amen.